Christ. Would you guys stand to your feet? We're going to worship our Father today. Hebrews 4, 16 says we can enter into his throne room, into the gates with confidence, knowing that his grace and mercy is available to us. So let us rejoice and celebrate that. Amen. worship you, God, for you've been so good to us. All right, sing, rise my soul. Oh, and rise my soul. For there is glory to behold. It's the beauty of the living Lord. God be praised. God be praised. Fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on the only one who satisfies. The time has come to lift him high. God be praised. God be praised. Lift your voices.
church. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That is the prescription this morning, right out of the Psalms. And last week, I mentioned this scripture, Hebrews 13, 15, through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips to acknowledge his name. One of the words that I love is sacrifice in that. It's not through him, let us just freely sing because we sing so loudly everywhere we go. No, no we don't. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. It's going to cost you this morning, that's what I'm saying. It's going to cost you uh, a little bit of effort. It's going to cost you some volume. It's going to cost you uh, maybe just kind of like getting over ourselves a little bit as well and just saying, Lord, the price that I put on this is worth more than, than me holding back. And I'm going to choose to praise you this morning. I'm going to choose to offer up that sacrifice to you this morning. So let's lift our voices. Let's sing together. Let's give him what he's worth. Father, we choose to give you our yes this morning. You're worthy of our yes. Come on, sing with me. I count on one thing. The same God that never fails will not fail me now. You won't fail me now in the waiting. The same God who's never late. He's working all things out. You're working all things out. Come on, new life, let's go. Yes, I will. That's right. Working all things. 
this morning. All the glory and honor and praise upon him. Infinite self-existence beyond the end before beginning. Eternal one, creator God. Glory to 
the highest praise. All the highest praise is yours. Come on, raise your hands with me. Oh, oh, glory to God for you are good. Sing that. Oh, oh, glory to God for you are good. Sing harmony, melody. Oh, oh, glory to God for your worth, you're worth it, Lord. Oh, oh, glory to God for you are good, for you are good. Here in this moment, you are good. Here in our homes, you are good. In our relationships and our families, you are working because you are good. All the praise is yours. All the praise is yours, Jesus. All the praise is yours, Lord. Just hold that moment for a moment. Just bring to mind the things of your life. Put them in front of the Lord and say, Lord, I, I lay this down in front of you because you're worth the praise. There's nothing I'm worshiping. There's nothing that's higher than you. Because only you can bear the weight of our worship.
do lift up your praise in the house of the Lord this morning. You are worthy to be praised, worthy of all praise and adoration. God, would you receive the praises of your people today? God, may it be a sweet incense to you this morning. And I'm mindful of my friends this morning who are worshiping out of pain, out of loss, out of out of hurt in their spirit, Jesus. Would you hear their praise? Would that be a sacrifice of praise? God, would our presence as a church gathered in this room today be, be praise to you? When, when she comes and it wasn't the amount that she gave, it was that she gave. And that's what we do when we gather we, we just come with an attitude of openness to Jesus. So in your praise this morning, would you, I see it and the Lord sees it. He sees what you are giving and he sees the attitude of what you are giving this morning. And God, we're just lifting it up to you. Would you just inhabit the praises of your people? Thank you for your presence with us this morning, Jesus. We praise with singing. We praise as we go throughout our days and our jobs. We also praise by giving a physical offering. If you brought a gift with you this morning, you can put it in the box by the door. You follow the instructions on the screen. But we give out of the much that Jesus has given us. We give in an attitude of thankfulness. Thank you for your giving, church. My name is Colin. I'm the executive pastor here at New Life East. If it's your first time with us, welcome. We're so glad you've chosen to spend your Sunday morning with us. Would you fill out the guest card that's on your seat and bring it to Connect Central? We have a gift for you. We would love to meet you. Today is Groups Launch Sunday. Our groups progress in trimesters here at New Life. And so this is an on-ramp, an easy on-ramp to meet some of our groups who have some availability, some openness in their groups. So meet them. They'll be in Connect Central. You can exchange information. Also, there's a QR code on our screen for you to take a picture of that and peruse all of the things going on at New Life East. One other that you'll see if you scan the QR code is that our junior high uh, ministry with all a new life has a retreat at the Ponderosa camp next weekend, which will be a great time for them. That's Friday and Saturday. You can get information on uh, online by doing that. The last thing I want to draw your attention to before we turn and greet one another is that uh, we are resuming Come Forward Communion, which is great. You can clap for that if you want to. But this is just a quick housekeeping instructions for you. Um, later on this, in the service after the message, when Andrew will explain this again, but we, we realize it might take more than one time to get this. As you're sitting in your row, you will, not now, but you'll exit a row at a time into your inside aisle. So you guys over here, this section, just put your hands up. We see you. You'll, you'll exit to that side of your row. That's to your right. And then you'll just circle through that way and your communion server will serve you. And then all of you guys in this section, you'll go to, your, to the middle aisle. So even you all in the back, you'll go to the middle aisle and come forward. And I, just a row at a time and then cycle back into your row. And the same with you guys, but you guys will go that way. You guys will go that way to the middle row and come down and your community. Andrew will serve you communion this morning right there. Am I doing good? Okay, and then this section, you'll go that way. Got it? All right. We want to make it, we want to make worship easy. 
<laughs> Thank you. Let's turn to one another and say good morning, and then we'll open the word together. All right. Good morning. You can stay standing if you found your way to your seat. I'll invite you to stand back up. It's good to see you this morning, New Life East. Let's, before we open the scriptures together, let's go ahead and declare our faith. This is the faith of the one holy universal and apostolic church, the faith that was handed on to the apostles, passed down through the centuries, now has come to us. This is our story. Let's say it together, church. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. He's God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. That through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no ends. But we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. And we believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We're looking for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If you agree with that, say it real loud. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Friends, the presence of God is thick in our midst this morning. I was telling the volunteer group this morning that I woke up at about 5, 
5.15 or so. We had a men's uh, event last night, by the way. How many guys in the room went to the men's event last night? Raise your hand real high. What a great time. Thank you, Pastor Rory and crew, for putting it on. Can we give it up for our staff that put on the men's event? Such a good time. I expected to wake up this morning kind of bleary-eyed and unaware and, you know, that it'd take me a long time to get together. But instead, I woke up this morning and had such, I mean, just so quickly, the presence of God was so thick. And I was telling the volunteer team that as I was just basking in God's presence, what I saw this morning was just your faces and our gathering. And I sensed God's pleasure over you as a church. The voice from heaven when Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism says, you're my son with whom I am well pleased, my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Before Jesus does anything at all, God is pleased with him. And I'm here to say to you this morning, New Life East, before you do a single good thing for God and If you never get it right in your life, you never give God a single good thing. He still looks at you in Jesus and says, you're my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And with you, I am well pleased. And the great joke of the gospel is that when we finally surrender all of that striving to be good and just surrender into the goodness of God, what happens is good works. We wind up doing the things that please God out of gratitude. We give him what he's asking for, not because we're trying to earn something with him, but because we're just trying to say thank you for all that he is. So New Life East received that this morning. Hey, uh, this week was a really special week uh, for me. Uh, Just released this book, Streams in the Wasteland, Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers. Uh, Just hit the shelves uh, this week. And so uh, we're selling copies of this out in the lobby. Um, This is me just kind of saying thank you to you for all the support along the way and helping to make this book happen, little emails and encouragements and taking interest in some of the little things I'd post on social media about it. The book, I've had a lot of people ask, so the subtitle is Finding Spiritual Renewal with the Desert Fathers and Mothers, which is like the kind of book that maybe only Andrew Arndt would write. And some people have asked, like, is this like a book of history? And it's really not. It's not any kind of historical theology, but it leverages the witness of some people, a historical group of people, right at about the time that Christianity was becoming established in the Roman Empire, so called the third century, fourth century. There was a group of people that looked at what was happening in Roman society, and they were disturbed in their spirits by it. And they also looked at what what was happening in the church, and they were disturbed in their spirits by it. And so they fled to the deserts of Egypt, Syria, and Palestine, the surrounding deserts, really to just get quiet again and to live in simple community together, and to rediscover the radical way of Jesus. And they did. And what historians will tell you is that that group of people, known as the Desert Fathers and Mothers, they actually re-evangelized Christianity at a time when Christianity was on the brink of losing its soul. And about five years ago, when I was in the middle of a personal crisis, I turned my attention to the writings of these folks who voluntarily sought out this experience of having everything stripped away from them so that they could find God again. And in reading their stories and the example of their lives, I found God in a fresh way. And really, the Desert Fathers and Mothers were responsible for a lot of rebuilding of my own discipleship. So that's like a really long way of saying it's not a book of history so much as it is a book of discipleship. It really actually is Christianity 101 set in a key that not many people are used to singing. And uh, so I think you'll be strengthened by it. I think there's a provocative word in here for the church living at a very similar time in history to what the church was, you know, where it was at 1,700 years ago, where our society is pretty decadent and corrupt. And in a lot of quarters of the church, the church is not doing much better. So I think there's a provocation in here. But I got to tell you one, can I give you one quick testimony before I preach this morning? So my first hope for the, the church with this book 
is that it would strengthen God's people and provoke God's people. But my second big hope for this book is that it would be enticing enough to people that don't call the church their home that they just may give it a read. People that are either out of the church or have never been in the church, people who are walking away, people who have been alienated from the church for some reason, that because it's not churchy in its title, that they'd be enticed to buy it. And so Travis and Tracy Hearn, Hearns, where are you guys sitting? The Hearns are right over here. So Travis and Tracy Hearn, longtime members of New Life East, they used to live right over here and then recently moved to Cordera. And they pre-ordered a copy of Streams in the Wasteland many, many, many months ago before they moved. And so they move, and now there's new people living in their house, and Streams showed up on Tuesday, on launch day, showed up in the mailbox of these folks that are living at their house. Well, these people that live over in their house now are not Christians. But they opened the package, and this was inside it, and they started to read it, and they couldn't put it down. And so they texted Travis and Tracy and said, look, there's this book that came in the mail. We can't put it down can we pay you for it? We don't want to send it back to you. And the Hearns were like, oh my gosh, please don't pay us for it. Uh, It's all yours. And they said, we'd really like to come with you to church sometime. Yeah. So now that actually represents, and I mean this with all my heart, that actually represents my deepest hope for this book. That people who are kind of in that spiritual but not religious crowd, the kind of people that might buy a Deepak Chopra book or something like that, that they would grab this and they would find themselves completely enthralled with the beauty of Christ and that they become members of the church. So buy a copy, buy 10 copies, give them to your friends, give them to your unbelieving friends. I promise your unbelieving friends will enjoy this book. I wrote it with them in mind. So that's my altogether too long plug for Streams in the Wasteland. Thanks for indulging me. We're in the book of Nehemiah. I'll invite you to grab your Bibles and turn there. We've been following the story of Nehemiah, this godly man who saw that the city of Jerusalem was in shambles. God puts it in his heart to go back to Jerusalem and be part of the rebuilding of the city. And so he goes to the king, King Artaxerxes, the the king of the Persian empire, says, King, this is what the Lord has put in my heart. And the king blesses him to go back. And so we see Nehemiah head back to Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter two. And then last week I preached on the actual beginning of the rebuilding of the wall, which is such an inspiring chapter in Nehemiah chapter three. You see all of these people come out of the woodwork for miles around. And they sacrifice their time and their talent and their energy to help see the city come back into being. Now, uh, the chapter is such a beautiful chapter that as you're reading it, what you're tempted to think to yourself is like, okay, so the curtain should fall at this point and they all lived happily ever after, but not so fast. One of the things that you notice right out of the gate when you read the book of Nehemiah is that opposition comes to the people of God in all kinds of different forms. And so I want to talk to you some this morning about dealing with opposition as we follow the call of God. Before we open the scriptures together, let's pray. It's so amazing, God, how we can say nothing at all and yet your presence is just here. The psalmist said, that when I awake, I'm still with you. It's like he looks back over his night of sleep and he passes out of consciousness, but he knows that he never passed out of your consciousness, that he never passed out of your presence. And so whether we're aware of your presence or not aware of your presence, you're present. And you're present with all the intention of your goodness and your love to bless us and to help us and to wake us up to the kingdom of God. And so we just pray that you would open our eyes to that this morning. I'm mindful this morning as I begin to preach 
of what Bonhoeffer said so many years ago. He said that whenever we preach, whether the sermon is good or bad, if we're preaching from a pure heart, Jesus Christ is with us walking the aisles. And he's encouraging people and provoking people and helping people. And so my highest prayer that I could pray this morning, Jesus, is that you would do just that this morning. That you would walk up and down these aisles and that you'd help us and encourage us and that you would take this preached word and that you would create a Pentecostal miracle with it, that you'd make it an interpreted word for each person that's here this morning. As the folks of Acts chapter 2 said, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own language. Whatever it is the language that we speak this morning, we ask that we would hear the word of God in that native language and that it would cut to the quick, that it would melt us and that we'd fall in love with you again. Grant that, we pray. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. I want to give you, there are lots of different types of opposition that you see in the book of Nehemiah, but I want to give you five, just as kind of a distillation. And I want you, then this is what, we're going to start in Nehemiah chapter two. So normally I would work off a single text. But I'm going to show you some different moments here just to help you understand the kinds of things that you'll encounter as you follow God. One of the things that's very interesting, too, about these bits of opposition that we're going to notice is that they increase both in intensity, and we notice that in our own lives for sure, but they also increase in how nefarious they are. I mean, they get progressively like they start out as sort of like garden variety opposition, and they become downright nasty by the end. And so we're going to see this as we progress. So here's the first type of opposition. And what I want you to do as we walk through these five things is I want you to think about your own life. I want to think about you to think about your calling. I want you to think about the things that God has asked you to do and asked you to be. And I want you to just kind of like notice yourself inside the narrative. So here's the first type of opposition that Nehemiah encounters. And I think it's one that we also encounter. Number one, uh, questioning your motives. Everybody say questioning your motives. This is uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. Nehemiah has talked to the nobles and the officials of Jerusalem, and they've all kind of jumped in and said, yes, we're going to do this thing. And the scripture says, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and they ridiculed us. What is this you are doing? They asked, are you rebelling against the king? Now, Nehemiah knows that he's not rebelling against the king, right? He knows that he's gotten the king's authorization to do this thing, but maybe these guys think maybe we can plant some doubt in the minds of all the people that have come around Nehemiah. And if we can plant some doubt in their minds about the veracity of what Nehemiah is saying, question their motives. Are you really doing this out of a right heart? Aren't you really doing this because you're fomenting some rebellion at some point? Maybe we can knock the wind out of their sails. We encounter this, don't we? You start moving forward in the call of God and all of a sudden you have those people in your lives that start going, "Uh, hey, Tim, that's really nice and all, but what's this really about for you? Do you know what we call that? We call that gaslighting. The way that people get inside your head and all of a sudden it takes the energy out of your obedience. Questioning your motives is one of the things that you'll encounter as you seek to follow the Lord. And if that doesn't work, a lot of times what will happen is you'll see the opposition ratchet itself up a little bit and you'll just get out and out ridicule. This is Nehemiah chapter four, starting in verse one. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, See, that little bit of gaslighting didn't work. They went on with it. It says that he became angry and he was greatly incensed and he ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, and he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? 
Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish this in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? What I find fascinating about this little piece of text here, verse 3, is that the promise of the scriptures is not that the people will bring the stones back to life. The promise of the scriptures is that who will bring the stones back to life? God will do it. They actually have the promise of God on their side. And yet here are these folks ridiculing them and mocking them, trying to dislodge them, trying to disconnect them from the very promises of God. Have you had that in your life? I'm thinking now maybe of some of the students in the room here that you've made some decisions along the way to like, I'm going to get more serious about my faith. I'm going to be a better witness at school. I'm going to read the scriptures. I'm not going to like, when the conversation starts veering in this direction, I'm not going to do that, right? And so you start taking steps in that direction. You start amplifying your own faithfulness publicly. And all of a sudden, you got those friends that start kind of chattering about you. And I like this because Sanballat, he does this in the presence of the army. There's actually an armed, and he starts making fun of them. He's trying to whip up opposition against Nehemiah to try to, again, take some wind out of Nehemiah's sails. That's something that we encounter in the life of faith. You'll see it. And when you see that happening, when mockery starts coming your way, and there is a difference, by the way, between mockery and constructive criticism. The scripture says that in abundance of counselors, there is victory. There are good people that God has put in our lives that when we start moving forward, they go, hey, can we have a conversation about the way that you're doing that thing? Because I think there might be a better way to pull that off. That's not mockery. Mockery is trying to tear you down. Mockery is trying to take you out of the call of God. Mockery is trying to dislodge you from your obedience. Nehemiah encounters it here. The people encounter it here and they press on. They continue in their faithfulness. But if mockery and ridicule don't work, then it may be that the next thing that happens, again, ratcheting up the intensity a little bit, is that what you encounter is this. Next slide. Is that you encounter some form of organized resistance to what you're doing. Look at verses 7 and 8. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod. So now they've got all of this. All the, now we're not just talking about individuals. We're talking about all of these communities now around Jerusalem. When they heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls has gone ahead and that the gaps are being closed, they were angry. And now what do they do? They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. So it may be that if the mockery and the ridicule doesn't work, Maybe what will happen is that those people that are against you, what they'll do is they'll actually start coming up with plans to try to trip you up in the process. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've got a parent in your life that doesn't follow the Lord. And as you've tried to lead your family, I'll give you an example. As you've tried to lead your family, for instance, in the way of God, what you have is that mother-in-law or that father-in-law or your own mom or dad, that when they're in your house, they undercut the ways in which you're trying to lead your kids. And it's really difficult to put your finger on exactly how they're doing it, but it's all the little things that they do to try to destabilize the life of obedience. Guys, this happens to us, doesn't it? That if it's not mockery and ridicule, then what it becomes is some form of organized resistance that seeks to slow you down. All of us will experience this at some point. And so we start out with the gaslighting, and then we've got the mockery and the ridicule, and then we've got the organized resistance. And if those things don't work, it may be the thing that we encounter, again, ratcheting it up just a little bit, is distraction. Everybody say distraction. Look at here at Nehemiah chapter 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. So now Nehemiah and the group, they persevered all the way through and the wall is actually finished. 
with the exception of the doors that had not been set in the gates, Sanballat and Geshev sent me this message. They said, uh, come and meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me, Nehemiah says. So I sent messengers to them with this reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Uh, why should the work stop? Will I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. And then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message in his hand with an unsealed letter in which it was written. It's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're rebuilding the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us meet together. They start throwing threats at Nehemiah. Hey, you know, there's a whole bunch of rumors swirling out here that you guys are actually trying to foment a revolt. And so maybe, Nehemiah, if you could just take a break from what you're doing over there. I know it's all very important work and everything. But we have some very serious matters that we'd like to discuss with you. So if you could just come out here to the plain of Ono and have a little conversation with us, maybe we could straighten things out. And you know what commentators say? Commentators say, based on some details in the text, that these guys were actually, what they were planning to do is they were planning to kidnap Nehemiah. So if we could distract him from the work, maybe we can actually take him out of the work. That happens to us too. That we're doing such good work of the things that God has called us to do that people realize the only thing that we can do is start throwing distractions in their way, get them off mission. And then maybe they'll just forget about the whole thing altogether. Or maybe in some way we can take them captive again to what we really want them to do. Not this thing over here, but this thing over here. Distraction. They'll throw it at you. They go, hey, you know, everybody's kind of talking about you uh, on social media over here. So uh, maybe if you could just, we could get in a long conversation about this thing that you are doing. And man, what does Nehemiah do? Four times they send the message. And then the fifth time he says, I'm not having that conference with you. I'm not answering the email. I'm not taking you to coffee. We're not going to grab lunch. (laughs) What I'm doing is far too important to waste on you. Thank you very much. Somewhere along the line, We're going to have to come to that place in our spirits, guys, where we've vetted what we're doing. We've submitted it to good people. It's past the scrutiny of the scriptures. We've got an abundance of counselors. We know what God's called us to do. So we're not wasting our time with our detractors. Are you with me this morning? But if all of those things don't work and all of those things are pretty nefarious, you know what the last thing they'll do is? They'll try to create some kind of religious or spiritual subversion Watch this. This is verse 10 of the same chapter. One day I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel. Shemaiah here is a prophet, by the way, in Israel. He's a recognized religious leader in the city. And he was shut in at his home and he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they're coming to kill you. Shemaiah is sort of feigning a prophecy here. I've seen that this thing is going to happen, Nehemiah. I think that you ought to come over here and let's shut the doors. And I know, just take a little break from the work that you're doing over there. Come over here, Nehemiah. But I said, and I love this, should a man like me run away? Or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. And I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then that would give me a bad name and I would be discredited. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All of these things, religious subversion, that is the final and the most nefarious of all. You've probably experienced that too. 
You've been doing your thing, following the Lord, obeying God. And somebody who is against you in every way and against what you've decided to do says to you, hey, you really ought to listen to this podcast. I think it would help you. Pastor so-and-so across the country over here just wrote this book. I think this book would really help you. Oh, hey, you're doing that nice thing over here. Well, you ought to meet my friend so-and-so. Grab some coffee. He might be able to really help you. And all of those things are trying to undercut you. Because if it's not just out-and-out blatant opposition, what they think that they can do is that if you think that something, if you think that you've gotten a message from the Lord, maybe then you'll stop. And so they attack you right at the very point of your obedience. Are you with me, guys? So let me ask you a question this morning. Poor Nehemiah, right? I mean, here's this guy. He's living in the citadel of Susa. He's a cupbearer of the king. He didn't ask for this. But he's cut to the heart one day to do something good for God's people. And he begins to do it. And all he encounters along the way as he's doing this wonderful thing, and you see this as you read the book of Nehemiah, he keeps saying, God, remember me. <laughs> remember me with favor, God, for all that I've done. These people, all he encounters along the way is opposition, 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 opposition. So let me ask you a question this morning. Did you think this was going to be easy? Because if you did, you were given some bad information. There is nothing easy about discipleship. There's nothing easy about it. There is no like it's not a walk down the primrose path, raindrops on roses, whiskers on kids. It's not easy. And I spent a lot of my discipleship thinking that at some point it would get easy. You know, I remember going through my teenage years and my early 20s and thinking about some of the obstacles that I was encountering along the way. And I remember some of those early years thinking, and maybe you've thought this in your discipleship, that you've thought, you know, I'm encountering this thing right now, but when I just get past this season, then all of a sudden everything will be easy. It'll be great. And then you get into that next season and you go, huh, that didn't go at all the way that I thought that it was go- would go. Well, maybe I was just kind of confused about that season. So maybe what it is, is as soon as things come together on this front over here, then I will kind of graduate into that place where everything is easy and it's all downhill. And then you get to that place and you're sorely disappointed and you go, okay, you know, it's like, um, how many of you have ever done the Manitou incline over there? You know, it's like a, they've got like the false summit. Well, you start realizing pretty quickly as you follow Jesus that there are like a thousand false summits along the way. You get to what feels like the top and you go, son of a gun. We still got another 17 zillion steps that we have to go up. And it takes a while to disabuse you of the notion that it will ever get easy. I was in my early 30s when I think the bubble like finally burst for me. We'd been pastoring a church in Denver, helped to plant a church there. And I remember thinking those early years, I remember thinking, okay, it's tough now, but at some point the flywheel is going to start spinning and we're going to gain the head of steam and everything is just going to be amazing. And they all lived happily ever after. And I got to 31, 32, I think it was about 31 actually. And I remember I had gone through what felt like the hardest year of my life. And I remember like my motto for that year was like on my gravestone, I want them to say, this will be my quote. Nobody can adequately prepare you for how difficult it is to be a human being. That was like my statement for the year. But I still, I think, was like nursing this idea that at some point it gets easier. And I sat down one day with a new pastor in town. He's an Episcopal priest at a church across town. 
Father Terry was his name. And Father Terry, about 20 years older than me, and I'm welcoming into the city and just catching up with him and getting to know him a little bit. And I remember saying to him kind of towards the end of the breakfast, and remember I'm the ripe old age of 31 at this point and wanting to prove that I had some maturity about me. And so I said to Father Terry, I said, Terry, you know, I appreciate all these stories and everything that you're sharing with me. And you're about 20 years my senior here. And so I'm just wondering if you could look back on yourself at my age and have a conversation with yourself at my age, like what's like the one thing that you would say to yourself? And Terry leaned back and he thought about it for a second. And then he leaned forward and he looked at me and he said, I think I would say, you're going to be fine. And I loved that. And I said, oh, Terry, that's good. Everything's going to be okay, isn't it? And he stopped me. I did not say that. He said, everything is not going to be okay. Things are not going to work the way that you want them to work. Plans are not going to come together the way that you want them to come together. And you're going to experience disturbance in relationships on every conceivable front. I did not say that everything is going to be okay. I said that you're going to be fine. God's going to sustain you through all of that stuff, but everything is not going to be okay. And we have this thing in American Christianity where everything, because we live in this ethos of consumerism, where every product is the newest product and the better this and the better that. And if you'll just buy this one thing for three easy payments of $39.95, it'll cure all of your health problems and your psychological problems and all of your relationship problems. And we're always looking for that one thing, aren't we? That one like silver bullet that like makes everything in our lives better. And so it's so easy then for our spiritual pitch. Our gospel so easily falls into that. We go, well, all of those other products that we bought for three easy payments of $39.95 didn't work. But surely Jesus must be the one thing that just makes everything in your life work. And so that's the way that we package it to people. We go, you know, if you just sign on the dotted line here with Jesus, then you're going to have a ton of money and your body's always going to feel good. Your relationships are always going to work. All of your kids are going to grow up to be godly, God-fearing people. Your marriage is going to be perfect and you're going to live happily ever after. And that works until we leave the church building and we actually start living and we realize that it's much more complicated than that. And it also works until we actually read the Gospels and we see that Jesus and the picture that he paints for us of discipleship is completely different than that. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter, or Matthew chapter 16 here. From that time on, Jesus is with his disciples. And he began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the, chief, of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. That he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Next verse. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Jesus, what are these dark and morbid thoughts you're having? Maybe you just need like a nap and a snack that'll lift your spirits back up. Or Snickers bar. You're not you when you're hungry, you know? Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, these things shall never happen to you. And Jesus, verse 23, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Next verse. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, he ups the ante still further. It's not just, Jesus says, that I'm going to the cross, that I'm going to suffer, that I've got a tough time ahead of me. But Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. And what do they have to do? Take a welcome to the life of faith, ladies and gentlemen. That we're called with Jesus to know that in an ungodly world, we're going to experience opposition. And the cross, by the way, is not just kind of any discomfort that we have to, that we have, you know, experience in our lives. Oh, I went for a run two Saturdays ago that was too long and my hips were a little sore, but I'm bearing my cross and following Jesus. No, 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 no. John Howard Yoder, the Mennonite theologian of the 20th century, said that the believer's cross is like Jesus. It's the price of nonconformity. The cross is the reality of representing in an unwilling world the kingdom that is to come. See, there's something that we forget, ladies and gentlemen. We forget that the world that we live in is organized against your obedience. Maybe I didn't say that clearly enough. The world that we live, is, live in is organized against your obedience. The deck is stacked against you. We're up against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's what the New Testament says. That the whole deck is stacked against us. It's not set. The table is not set for us to succeed in this life. It's set for us to fail in this life because the unbelieving world stands to profit off of our disobedience. Think about, as an example, think about Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., man of faith in the middle part of the 20th century, African-American young man growing up in the church, sees the oppression of his people and starts to feel the spirit stir in him to begin to raise his voice on behalf of his people. And so he responds to the call in the early years of his life. And what we'd love to be able to say about Dr. King is that the moment that he began to call out the systemic injustice and oppression of his society, that everything just went his way. And everybody that was making everybody else's lives miserable just went, I see the truth of your cause, Dr. King. Thank you so much for reminding me of these things that I'd lately forgotten. Yeah, let's go ahead and fall in line. But that's not how it happens. His life doesn't get easier the moment he starts to respond to the call. It gets infinitely more difficult. And yet because of his obedience, the world as we know it has changed. But why does it get so difficult when we start to follow the Lord? Why did it get so difficult when Dr. King started to follow the Lord? It's because the world that we live in stands to profit off of our disobedience. Powerful interests, right, around Dr. King, that they benefited off of the system as it was. And so they don't need him to succeed because if he succeeds, it takes money out of their pocket. It takes power away from them. By the way, that's the same thing that's happening in Nehemiah. Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, you know what they are? They're not just random people. They're local leaders who are not Jewish by descent. And a resurgent Jerusalem is a great threat to them. All of a sudden, their reigns on their power is coming to an end. And the money that they were making off of a crippled Jerusalem, that's coming to an end. And so if this thing comes into being, if the righteousness of God comes into being in Jerusalem, they stand to lose by it. I'm saying to you this morning that that's why you're experiencing opposition. Because the unbelieving world stands to lose by your, your obedience and gain by your disobedience. So what do you think it's going to do? 
It's going to make your life miserable. A world under the reign of sin, friends, stands to profit off of our disobedience. So here's the question. How shall we be in the midst of it? And here is what Nehemiah shows us. I love this. Nehemiah 6.11. They're calling him out into the plains. And what does Nehemiah say? Not rhetorical. Say it real loud, church. Don't you love that? They're bullying him, badgering him, pushing him around, trying to knock him off mission. And what does he say? Should a man such as I flee? Like you think that I'm backing down from this challenge? Oh no. I'm standing right in it. I'm enduring right in it. And I'm going to see this thing all the way through. And because he did, Jerusalem got rebuilt. And when I hear these words of Nehemiah, I cannot help but think of the example of Jesus. All scripture, the scripture tells us, somehow in some way is shadowing forth, bodying forth the person of Jesus. And when we read these words in the example of Nehemiah, I think that we're intended to hear the words of the Lord Jesus. Think about this in Luke chapter 13. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. And he replied, you go tell that fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. And in any case, he said, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. What does Jesus say in the face of his opposition? I'm bringing the fight straight to you. He got everybody around him going, hey, Jesus, you ought to back down. You know, you've got resistance coming from Herod. And he goes, you go tell that fox that I'm bringing the fight straight to him. Brothers and sisters, the spirit of Jesus Christ dwells in us. Jesus sees the mission through all the way to completion and therefore we are saved. He bleeds and he dies, and therefore we are saved. And his spirit resides in us to give us the power and the encouragement and the strength to endure all the way through. And I wish, I wish that I could sit here and tell you that in the life of faith, that all you got to do is clear a couple little hurdles, and then it'll all just be easy for you. And I haven't followed Jesus for a long time. I'm 41 years old. Some of you have twice that long you've followed Jesus. But I think I have enough experience to tell you this, that it will never be easier for you than it is right now. It just keeps ratcheting up. As your faithfulness and your maturity grow up, do you know what will happen? God entrusts you with more. And he expects more out of you. And so you start following him. And do you know what happens? the unbelieving world starts stacking the deck more and more against you. The opposition just goes up. And I would love to be able to tell you, I've been in full-time ministry for almost 20 years, I would love to be able to tell you that every single time I got up to preach, for instance, that I just experienced the joy of the Lord and this is just so fun and aren't I so lucky that I get to do what I get to do? And I'm telling you, so many Sundays that I'd wake up in the morning and I'd go, that is the last thing that I want to do. God Almighty, it's so hard. It's so hard. 
And I'm searching, I'm scraping the bottom of the barrel of my soul for strength. God, help me with this. Why have you asked me to do this? It feels like, it feels like it would be more fortunate to me to get martyred in a day. Instead, what this feels like is a long martyrdom in the same direction, a lifetime of bleeding over these things. And you just do it. You get up and you go. You say, yes, I'm going to head into that thing. And what you start experiencing over time is not only does God sustain you and strengthen you through all of that, but then you look back and you go, all of these people, their lives were blessed and helped and strengthened by it. The emails and the notes and the testimonies, thank you for doing that. I know that it cost you something. I know that it cost you probably more than anybody will ever know what it cost you, but you did it. And just so that you know, it made a difference for me. And you go, oh, that's why we do it. We're followers of Jesus, friends. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says about us. Therefore, Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, the writer of Hebrews says, who endured, everybody say endured, such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endures because he sees the joy set before him. And do you know what it means to endure? The Greek word for endure, to persevere, is hupomeno. Do you know what it just means? You remain in it. And there are going to be times in your calling when everything inside of you screams at you. Pull the ripcord. It's not worth it. Bail out. Give up. Walk away. And I'm saying to you this morning that the spirit of Jesus is in you. You can, and more than can, you will stay in it because the one that's in you is greater than the one that's in the world. Can I get an amen from somebody? Stand up on your feet this morning. May the strength of the Spirit now fall on the people of God. Friends, I don't know where you're growing weary. I don't know where you're losing heart. That's a pregnant phrase that the writer of Hebrews gives us. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And some of you, I just sense this morning, you're here and you have lost heart inside your calling. Or some part of your calling. Might be that you're losing heart in your marriage. May the strength of the Lord fall upon you. Might be that you're losing your heart with your kids. May the strength of the Lord fall upon you. It might be that you've got some obedience to offer, some calling to fulfill in the world, and you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God's called you to it, and you're losing heart. Oh, may the strength of the Spirit fall upon you. There are students in this room that somewhere along the line you made the decision, I will follow Jesus. And you're in now the first month and a half of school and it's getting hard for you and you're feeling like you're losing heart. May the strength of the spirit fall upon you. Church, would you lift your hands like this? And I don't know what your calling is. I don't know what you're carrying. I don't know what God has asked you to do, but it's all here for you right now. The prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is give us this day our daily bread. 
And the bread from heaven is yours right now. The strength of the Spirit is yours right now to endure in your marriage and to endure with your kids, to endure in your calling, to endure at your school, to endure in what God has asked you to do. It's here. It's for you. It's right now. Friends, just receive right now. Just receive right now. Receive the strengthening of the Spirit. Receive the encouragement of the Spirit. Receive the grace of the Spirit. And as you're receiving with your arms lifted high to the heavens, let's pray as the Lord Jesus taught us. Say it with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward to serve communion this morning, as Pastor Colin was telling us. We'll exit right here to these three rows and then come back around four stations. Go ahead and take your elements, take them back to your seat, and let's respond in worship with this song. And then Pastor Colin will lead us to the table.
For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. And what we hold in our hand is the elements. He says, this is my body. God was faithful in seeing this through. And Jesus faced temptation. And even in the desert, when Satan said, throw yourself off of here, it was a test that he was testing Jesus as if he could test Jesus. And Jesus' response was do not put the Lord your God to the test. So many times, and Jesus was faithful for you. This is faithfulness that we have and we celebrate today. So as you receive today, we'll take communion in a second. Would you think about the faithfulness that he's calling you to? The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed after, after he'd given thanks, God, we give thanks for leading us for dying on a cross for our sins. We thank you. He broke bread. Would you break it? He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you receive his gift? And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, the cup of salvation that was poured out for all. It was poured out for you. Because Jesus loves you. Would you receive the cup? 
Thank you, Jesus. Would you give him praise? Thank you, Jesus. Would you lift your voice in doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Hello? The scripture says that the one who calls us is faithful. And he will do it. It's the energy of God working in us that takes us through the finish line. When we gather, we're not gathering to gear up our own strength. We're gathering to relax into the strength of God. And it's been given to you this morning. You have everything that you need to do what God's asked you to do. Friends, open your hands. Receive this blessing as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, grace, mercy, and peace be with you. Invite our altar ministry team to be ready for prayer here at the edges of our auditorium. If you need prayer for anything, we would love to pray with you. Fellowship hour happening in Connect Central. Copies of streams in the wasteland are available out there for you to purchase. And I'll also be out there writing little love notes on the inside cover if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, Bless you. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. We'll see you real soon.